You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. I feel like I've been saying Merry Christmas for the last two weeks, um, but now I feel like it's actually appropriate to say we're close enough. Um, My name is Abigail. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my husband uh, and I have been coming to reality for about three years now, and it's such an honor and a blessing to be a part of this church family. Um, Today we are in our third week of our Advent series. So uh, if you might remember, uh, Audrey shared the meaning of the word Advent. Um, is simply the arrival. And so throughout church history, uh, churches have set aside the weeks leading up to Christmas to celebrate this expectancy for the arrival of Jesus, the advent of Jesus. And so that's going to be what we're focusing on this morning. Um, As some of you may know, uh, my husband David and I work with a missions organization and we run an introductory Bible school with the missions organization. And so because of that, um, we have the opportunity to teach quite frequently. And one of the teachings that I do the most often is a teaching called Bible Overview, which I realize sounds very boring, and I usually have to apologize for the title to my students ahead of time. But it is essentially a 15-hour lecture over the course of one week where we talk through the story of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So as you can imagine, this teaching is actually very difficult to put together because um, if you just think about it for a minute, if you were asked to put together, okay, I'm going to tell the story of the Bible, I have 15 hours to do it, Genesis to Revelation, what goes in, what do I focus on, what do I leave out, what do I skip? And a question that comes up in preparing for this Bible overview lecture is, what is the main theme of the Bible? I don't know if you guys have ever thought about that question. Um, What is the main theme or the main focus of the story of the Bible? So like any great work of art, whether it's a song or a movie or a book, the Bible has hundreds of themes that are woven through it. Themes about God's faithfulness, themes about human fallenness, But what is the main one? And of course, this is debated. Um, But I would argue with you uh, that the main theme of the Bible, if I had to put it into words, is this. God's desire to dwell with his people. God's desire to dwell with his people. Or to put it in the language of our Advent passage this morning, God with us. And there's many reasons why I would choose this as the main theme of Scripture, but one of those reasons I want to share with you this morning is that there is this uh, phrase that is repeated throughout the Bible, almost like a refrain. So if you're into music, you know that a refrain is a line or a melody that gets repeated throughout a song or a book or a poem. And this is the refrain. Essentially, there's three parts to it. I will dwell among you, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Okay, so already that should sound a little bit familiar to you guys, because it's going to come up, starting in Genesis and all the way through Revelation, that phrase is going to come up in multiple different ways throughout the whole story of the Bible. And I'm going to show you a few examples um, 
I think only the screens in the back are working right now. So this is the one time if you're sitting in the back, this is like good for you. <laughs> um, but I'm just going to read them to you. So I know it's hard sometimes if you don't have the visual, but I'm just going to read them out to you. A few examples of this refrain coming up throughout the story of the Bible. So see if you can hear the echo of this refrain in these passages. Exodus 6, verse 7. This is the Lord speaking to Israel. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Exodus 29, 45 through 46. God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who has brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Leviticus 26, verse 12, I will make my dwelling among you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. You guys hear the refrain? Ezekiel 37, 27, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then the last one I'm going to share with you, Zechariah 2, 10 through 11. The Lord says, Behold, I will come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. So you guys notice when this refrain comes up, it's not the exact same every time, but it's like this echo, right, that comes up again and again. Now, I showed you, I believe, six different examples, but there are over 28 examples of this refrain just in the Old Testament. And it speaks to this theme of God's desire to dwell with his people. And I promise you, once you read the Bible in that lens, you'll see it on every page, this driving desire of God to be with us. And that, of course, brings us to the Christmas story, the Advent story, um, where we will be spending our time this morning when God became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the thing that we meditate on every year in December. If you have your Bibles uh, with you this morning, our passage today is going to come from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love you, and uh, I just pray over myself and everyone here that as we meditate on this story that it would come alive for us in a new way, and we would be able to see it with fresh eyes and uh, open minds, open hearts, Lord, and that you would speak uh, to us the things that we need to hear this morning. Um, Lord, I pray that as we spend this last week leading up to Christmas, that this story would be just on our hearts and our minds that we would take the time today and over this week to really reflect on the story of your birth and what it means for us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, so I was really excited to do uh, an Advent, uh, be a part of the Advent series. I love the Christmas stories in the Bible. So they're some of my favorite narratives uh, in the Gospels, the stories of the wise men and the shepherds and the star and angel visitations and dreams. Um, these are stories that we read in my family every year at Christmas, and I think for most people in the U.S., even if they didn't grow up in a Christian home, these are stories that we're really familiar with because if you celebrate Christmas, these are the stories that are talked about, and even in the Christmas hymns that are sung, they're retelling these stories. And so we're coming to this specific story in Matthew, and it's familiar to us. And so something we say a lot in our equipped classes is with familiarity comes a little bit of a danger that we can sort of tune out to the message that's being communicated. And I think especially when it comes to the Christmas stories, because there's so much vivid imagery in them, right? You have shepherds and wise men and stars. It's easy to think of these stories in the category of myth and legend, right? Once upon a time in a land far, far away. And so what I want to help us do this morning is to approach these stories the way that the gospel authors would like us to approach it, um, which is with the mindset that these are real events that take place in human history, in real space, in real time. Um, so as we, as we step into this story, uh, we know from the Gospel of Luke that Mary and Joseph uh, are from a very rural northern village in Israel called Nazareth. And I have a map for those of you who like maps. Um, it's a bit small, but the map on the right, I kind of have a circle there where the small village of Nazareth is located. And uh, archaeologists have excavated uh, quite a bit of ancient Nazareth, and because of their excavation, they found that in the first century, the population of Nazareth would be around 300 people, three to 400 people. Um, so I was trying to think of, okay, what's a comparison so we can get a visual of like, what, 300 people? Um, and I found out that that's about how many kids go to this school. <laughs> um, that's their town, that's their village. So it's a very small village, one where everyone knows everyone else, um, especially in an age before television, everyone kind of knows everyone else's business because that's your entertainment. And so this is Nazareth. And another thing that's interesting about Nazareth is if you look at it on a map um, from this time period, there are no roads that go through Nazareth. So nobody's coming to this town unless you specifically want to go to Nazareth for some reason. Uh, it's kind of the definition of in the middle of nowhere. 
Um, and we actually get a kind of an example of how obscure this town is in Israel in the Gospel of John chapter 1. So there's this funny scene where Philip, one of the disciples, has just met Jesus for the very first time, and he is so excited, and he is convinced that he has just met the Messiah. So the first thing he does is he runs to tell his buddy Nathaniel about Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. This guy is sold. He's like, we found the guy. This is the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel hears that, and what does he say? He responds by saying, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, out of all that, what did he get? Oh, Nazareth, where is that? Where's that town? So then, of course, Philip famously says, oh, come and see. Come and see. So Nazareth is kind of an obscure little town. This is where Mary and Joseph are born and raised and where they will end up raising Jesus. Now, in verse 18 of our passage, we read that Mary had been betrothed, or another word for that is engaged, to Joseph. And I don't know if you guys noticed, but there's something odd, a little bit odd in the text here because... Um, although they are described as being an engaged couple, later on in verse 19, we see that Matthew refers to Joseph as Mary's husband. Did you guys notice that in the text? He calls Joseph Mary's husband. And then later on, he says um, that Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. So that's a bit odd because they're only engaged. So why is Matthew referring to Joseph as her husband? And why is he talking about divorce? So this is kind of an odd cultural thing. So um, to explain this, we need to know just a little bit about ancient Jewish marriages at this time in the first century. They are very, very different from our marriages in the United States. Um, the first big difference about Jewish marriages at this time is that they're all about the parents. Um, the parents are kind of in control of setting up the marriages. This was what we would call arranged marriages. Um, I don't know, has any of you guys seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof before, a few of you? Yeah, that's kind of the scene. The parents are arranging these marriages, and a Jewish marriage kind of had two parts. So the first part of the marriage was the betrothal. This is when the parents of the bride and the groom would get together, and they would have an engagement ceremony. And it was actually a very official thing. So you would have witnesses there, there would be a contract signed, and this would usually happen when the bride at least was 12, 13 years old. So as a kid, you already know this guy down the street in Nazareth is the one that I'm going to get married to. And at this time, betrothal was such a serious thing that it was essentially viewed as you're already married. That's kind of how official it was. And so if you, for example, <clears throat> If you were betrothed and your, the one you were engaged to passed away, you would be referred to as a widow or a widower. Um, that's how kind of serious they would view this um, betrothal. And then it's also so serious that the only way to break a betrothal is through a divorce. So this is why Matthew is using this language of husband and uh, divorce, because betrothals in this time were seen as essentially marriages. Then, of course, the second part of the marriage is what they would call the home-taking, which is what we would call the marriage itself, where the bride's friends and families would guide her from her house to the house of her betrothed in this big processional, and then they would have a giant wedding feast that would last for like a full week. So in Nazareth, this would be like everyone in town is there. 
So here we have Mary and Joseph growing up in a small village of Nazareth. Uh, they're betrothed, but they're not yet married, which means that Mary is most likely between 14 and 16 years old. Now, Matthew is going to tell this story from the perspective of Joseph. If you read Luke's gospel, he's going to tell the story from Mary's point of view. But Matthew tells the story from the perspective of Joseph. And what's the story that Joseph hears? First, he hears that Mary, the girl that he's known his whole life, and known that he was going to marry for most of his life, is pregnant. It is not his child. And not only that, but the story that she is telling him is that she is pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. Now, who in Nazareth is going to believe this story? Potentially no one. Um, does Joseph believe this story? It's up for debate. I would suggest that he does not believe her. Um, and this may be why it says, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Um, so, it seems that Joseph himself doesn't even believe the story that Mary is telling, and you can't blame him. It's a pretty incredible story. Um, and so Joseph decides, you know what, we're going to end this betrothal, and we're going to try and do it as quietly as possible, so that probably means in the presence of one or two witnesses. Now, in a small town, my guess is it doesn't matter how quietly you try and break off a betrothal. Everyone's going to know, and they're going to know probably pretty quickly. Um, but he's doing what he can to make sure that uh, um, Mary doesn't have to go through any unnecessary shame. Now, as Joseph is processing this decision, an angel of the Lord appears to him. In verse 20, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So here we have an angel, and he's confirming Mary's story, saying she is telling you the truth. She has not been unfaithful to her marriage. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit that is creating life inside of her womb. Now, we're going to talk about this more later, uh, but essentially, this makes the child that she is carrying utterly unique, unlike any other human being in human history. Totally unique. In verse 21, the angel continues and says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, this is really interesting. So we are introduced to the name Jesus, and I'm going to share with you a little bit about the origins of this name. So the Hebrew name Jesus is the name Yehoshua, Yehoshua. This is the Old Testament name Joshua, Joshua. Um, what happened with this Hebrew name Yehoshua is that over time, over the years and years of this being a very popular name, the name Yehoshua gets shortened to Yeshua. It's much easier to say, Yeshua. Um, so this is actually really common in languages. I was looking it up this week. Um, if you have a word where two syllables are very, very similar next to each other, over time, one of those syllables tends to get dropped. And that's what happens with the name Yehoshua. It gets shortened to Yeshua. So by the time of Jesus' day, uh, his name would have been Yeshua. Uh, we have an example of this. I grew up in New England. And uh, in Massachusetts, there is a town uh, that if you were to read the name of the town, you would swear that the town should be called Worcester. You guys know this? You guys have been to New England? How do you pronounce it? Worcester. Or Worcester, if you have a little accent. You read it, and you're like, oh, this town should be called Worcester. But no, it's Worcester. 
Um, and if someone says it any other way, you're like, oh, you're not from here. Um, so anyway, that's what happens. Uh, the syllable gets dropped. So we have Yeshua. The Greek uh, spelling uh, pronunciation uh, is Jesus with the Y. And then in English, the Y gets turned into the J. And that's where we get the name Jesus from. Now, in both Gospels, Matthew and Luke, the, the writers of the Gospels are very clear that Ma Mary and Joseph do not choose the name Jesus. Um, they don't pick it out of a baby name book. In Luke and in Matthew, an angel visits, in Matthew, he visits Joseph, and in Luke, he visits Mary, and tells them explicitly, you will name this son Jesus. So it is God himself who is naming this child Jesus. And that's important because the name Jesus is going to tell us who this baby is going to be and what he is going to accomplish through his life. So the meaning of the name Jesus is Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the personal name of God, so you might also translate this as God saves. This is what the name of Jesus means, God saves. And in verse 21 we read, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So we get a meaning, a reason for why Jesus is named this, and it's because he will save his people from their sins. Now, I want to point out something really interesting about this verse. Um, in the Old Testament, when people would name their children Yehoshua, God saves, they would usually do so because they're pointing to God's act of salvation, right? You name your son God saves because it's supposed to remind you of God's act of salvation. What's interesting about this line, and I've kind of bolded the pronoun so you can see it more clearly, is notice the angel says, you shall call his name, the child's name, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So to put it another way, you will name this child God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. So this should cause you to think, okay, wait a minute, who is actually bringing salvation? Is it God or is it this child? Because the name means God saves, but who's actually gonna save this child? So what I think is happening is already in this very first chapter of Matthew, we are getting clued into the fact that this baby is actually God himself and that this child is actually going to bring salvation. And at the same time, you can still say, God is bringing salvation. So we get a hint of that in this line. Now, the next two verses is where we're going to camp out for the rest of our time together, verses 22 and 23. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, you'll notice that these two verses contain a quotation. Verse 23 is a quotation. This is the first of many, many times that Matthew will take an Old Testament quotation and he will use it to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of something in the Old Testament. Um, of all of the four Gospels, Matthew is the one who uses the most Old Testament uh, quotations. I believe it's about twice as much. I'm looking at David, fact check me. 
I know for sure it's the most. And this is because Matthew has a Jewish audience. And so he knows his audience especially is going to be concerned with what the Old Testament has to say about Jesus. Now this quotation here uh, comes from the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. And this prophecy was made in 734 BC, so a truly, truly ancient prophecy. And Matthew quotes it and it says that the birth of Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. Now I want to point out to you guys something interesting about this quotation. So uh, Matthew is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And he quotes it verbatim. So he quotes it word for word, except for one change. So Matthew makes one adjustment. And it's that word they, and I've bolded it on the screen. In the Greek translation, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, and Matthew has put the word they in there instead of the word you, which is interesting. And I think one of the reasons he's doing this is because he's cluing us into the fact that Emmanuel is not going to be Jesus's name in the sense that Jesus is his name, but rather Emmanuel is a title that people will refer to him as. So I think what Matthew is doing here is he's looking forward into the future and saying, this is how people will know this child. He will be called by the people Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so here we have our second name for Jesus in this passage. The first one, uh, God saves. And the second one, God with us. God with us, Emmanuel. Um, this is my favorite name for Jesus. Uh, you guys probably know throughout the New Testament there are so many names and titles that are given to Jesus. Um, he's called the Word. He's called the Great High Priest. He's called the author of our faith. I mean, just these beautiful titles. But of all of them, my favorite is this title, Emmanuel, God with us. Because I believe that this one name, Emmanuel, really sums up the whole story of the Bible in these three words, God with us. And essentially what this phrase is uh, referring to is what we now call in the church the incarnation, that moment when God became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh and dwelt among us, um, the incarnation. And this is something that I want to spend the rest of our time sort of meditating on, is this moment in history um, when God took on human form. This is something that we do not think about too often, at least if you're like me. Um, we think about the deity of Jesus very frequently, the deity of Jesus. We sing songs about it, we talk about it, we preach sermons about it, but the humanity of Jesus is something that we often don't meditate on too frequently. And so uh, I want to do that this morning, especially as we're heading into Christmas, thinking about how much of a gift it is to us that God would take on human form. And what does that actually mean for us today? What are the implications of that? And so with our time left, I want to share with you three ways that the incarnation is a gift to us. And just to clarify again, when I say incarnation, I mean God in human form. That 
specific aspect of Jesus' nature? In what way is that a gift to us? And there are many, and I've been reflecting on it a lot these past few weeks, um, and I have three <laughs> that I want to share with you. And the first is that the incarnation shows us God's sympathy with our weakness. God's sympathy with our weakness. Um, because of the incarnation, we have a God who knows experientially what it is like to be human, to carry our weaknesses, uh, to be physically tired, to be physically thirsty, to experience betrayal, to experience loss. Jesus lived out a life uh, where we read about in his stories that he did experience hunger, he did experience thirst, he did experience pain, he experienced what it's like to be betrayed by a friend, and ultimately he did experience a human death. Um, we in Hebrews 4, verse 14, there's this really beautiful verse uh, where the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus and he's describing him as a high priest. And he says this line, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness. And his point here is that when you pray to Jesus, you're praying to someone who actually has lived a human life. Um, and that's such a gift to us because uh, when we go through things, when we suffer, um, we're invited to come to a God who actually understands and can sympathize with our struggles and with our grief and with our pain. And that is truly a gift to us. Uh, second, the incarnation shows God's commitment to the human race. It shows God's commitment to the human race. Uh, so if there's ever a doubt before the story of Jesus about whether or not God is actually invested in humanity and invested in our earth and our world, those doubts should be silenced with the story of the incarnation. That God cares so much about us and our world and what's going on here that he would actually become one of us. That he would live and he would die on our behalf in order to free us from sin and from death. Um, something that I don't know if you guys have thought about before, but the Bible teaches that the incarnation was actually necessary for God to redeem us. It's actually a requirement. It needed to happen. And we see this in the book of Hebrews again in chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. And I'm going to read to you from the, the New Living Translation because I think it spells it out very clearly for us. Um, The author writes, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. So there's a description of the incarnation right there. Now, why did he have to become flesh and blood? He's going to go on to explain. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. It's an amazing passage, and there's a lot of theology in this, but essentially what the author is saying is we are flesh and blood, and Jesus had to become like us. Why? So that he could die on our behalf and break the power of fear of death over us and lead us into freedom. It actually had to happen. 
Um, and so for me, I, I, theology sometimes seems a little bit abstract and it's helpful to see a more concrete picture. And to me, the best picture of this is a story in the Old Testament, very famous story in the Old Testament, the story of Moses in the Exodus. Um, and I think this story kind of parallels what we see happening right here in the Incarnation. So if you guys know the story of the Exodus, Moses was actually raised in Pharaoh's household. You know this. Um, he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, which means that Pharaoh, uh, Moses had a royal status in Egypt, one of the most powerful nations on earth. He had riches. Uh, he had privilege. He had status. Um, he was a prince of Egypt. And yet, Moses chose to set that identity aside, and he chose to identify with a nation of slaves. You guys remember this story? And he chooses to stand before Pharaoh and before everyone and say, these are my people, and I am with them. I am one of them. And he does that in order to lead them out of slavery and into freedom. Do you guys see a parallel there between Moses and Jesus? where Jesus set aside um, the privilege and authority that he has as the divine and becomes human in order to lead us out of slavery and into freedom. Um, this is spelled out most beautifully in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Um, if you guys came to our equipped classes in November, we spent a whole evening just on these verses because they're so powerful. And to me, this is actually one of the most beautiful Christmas verses in our Bible, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. In talking about Jesus, the author Paul says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To me, this shows how dedicated God is to seeing us free and to redeeming his people. In uh, 2005, there's a book that came out called uh, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And this book uh, did a massive survey and study on um, essentially my generation, millennial generation. And what they found is that among uh, my generation and younger, uh, one of the most prevalent worldviews is something that they called moralistic therapeutic deism. And this is a belief that sounds a lot like Christianity, but it actually is very far removed from the Christianity of the Bible. Uh, this is the belief that God does exist, that he did create the world, but that he is totally removed and distant from his creation. He is not personally involved in my life or in our lives. Um, he's like a being who started something and then left the project. Um, he is not personal and he is not involved. Um, in, in other words, he doesn't care. And this was very, very uh, prevalent belief even to this day. And yet, it is not the story of the Bible. And to me, one of the great evidences of God's commitment to us, his involvement with us, is that he would come and become one of us. There's no greater sign of his commitment to us than that. 
And then finally, uh, and we'll close uh, with this, the gift of the incarnation shows God's desire to dwell with us. God's desire to dwell with us. Ultimately, the work of Jesus makes a way for us to one day enter into God's presence, for us to one day um, see God face to face. Um, That's essentially the Christian hope. And that is what the story of the Bible, I believe, is all about. From the Garden of Eden to Revelation, it is God making a way for us to come back in relationship with him. And so earlier this this morning, I shared with you guys that refrain that is repeated throughout the story of the Bible. And and so as we close, I want to share with you the last time that we read this refrain. It's on one of the last pages of your Bible, the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 21, verse 23. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the story of the Bible summed up, Emmanuel, God with us. And so I, I wanna encourage you as we enter into this last week leading up to Christmas that if you have not spent time ever meditating on the humanity of Jesus, um, I would invite you into that because God with us is a gift, and the humanity of Jesus is a gift to us. And so, as we transition into a time of worship, I want to encourage you guys, um, yeah, just to reflect on the blessing that it is that we have a God so committed to us and so desirous for relationship with us um, that he would be born uh, thousands of years ago uh, in human form and ultimately would die for us. Uh, Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for you and for the gift uh, of your son. And I pray over myself and uh, this church that this week would be such a special time uh, of reflection of your goodness and your pursuit of us. God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus and for the gift of uh, your presence with us and your desire to dwell with us. Lord, and I pray over um, this next week that we would find time to carve out of our schedule to reflect on who you are and just sit in gratefulness of the gift of you. And God, I pray for those who are uh, grieving and going through a really hard season this Christmas. Uh, Lord, I pray that the gift of your presence um, would be more real than it ever has been um, and that we would know on a very deep level uh, uh, that you are, just as you promised, you are with us always. Pray these things in your name. Amen.